Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Dave Kindred about his new memoir, My Home Team, A Sports Writer's Life and the Redemptive Power of Small Town Girls Basketball, which details the arc of his award-winning career from one of sports' most storied writers to his return home to cover a local girls' high school basketball team. Dave has covered sports for numerous newspapers and periodicals over his 50-year career. He is one of only two sports writers who have earned sports writing's three highest honors, the Red Smith Award, the Penn America ESPN Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Dan Jenkins Medal for Excellence in Sports Writing. He is a member of the National Sports Media Hall of Fame. Dave Kindred, welcome to That Said. Michael, thank you. Thank you for reading the book. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for writing it, and thank you for joining me. So I want to begin this way. You've been writing now for 50-plus years on a variety of topics with great eloquence. And I told my old college mate, uh, Tony Kornheiser, that I was going to be speaking with you. And he said, quote, he's a wonderful guy, a great talent, one of the greatest sports writers of all time. So I thought I'd start by giving you an opportunity <laughs> for rebuttal. <laughs> well, anything Tony says should always be taken with a grain of salt, you know, but Tony is one of the great talents of all time. I remember when, when I first meeting Tony, I'd read him in the Times, in the New York Times. I'd read some magazine things that he had done. It was a it was a great honor, actually, to be in the same room with Tony. Yeah, he's a great guy. So in the introduction, you write, so here I am, a sports writer. I came from small-town America to work for the great newspapers and magazines. Then, after five or six decades at it, I closed the circle by returning to Illinois. I thought my typing days were over. Instead, one happy thing led to another, and I found myself again having fun, this time writing about a girls' high school basketball team. This takes some time to explain. So I'd <laughs> like to have you explain this over the, over, the, over the next hour, but maybe as a macro level, you can give us the, the arc, and then we'll dive in more granularly. Well, when we first moved back, my wife and I both are from small town Atlanta, Illinois. We did think it was time to close the circle. I was done with the big time journalism. Uh, she was become, you know, she was not in the best health. I thought it would be good to get her around her family again. So we moved back here. Her mother was here, had cousins, aunts, all that. And my mother and sister still lived in Illinois. We came back. Went to a friend's, a friend had a daughter playing basketball. So I wanted to see her play. We went to the game, watched her play. I discovered that it was impossible for me, you know, the old war horse, it was impossible for me to sit at a basketball game and not want to write about it. So I, I discovered that the father of one of the players had a website dedicated to the girls' basketball team. I went to him. He had no idea who I was or what I was, other than I was this kind of a disheveled old man coming out of the stands and asking him if I could write for his website. And uh, he finally said yes. And I wrote that night. And now, 14 years later, I'm still writing about that girls' basketball team. Now some of the girls, of course, are married or mothers. And uh, time has passed. But it became, uh, began, I think, as a lark, you know, and, and it, as the book tells you, you know, it became a kind of a purpose of life for me. So let's talk about the book. It has uh, essentially three acts, and I think of act one as sort of your origin story. And you've just mentioned that you come from Atlanta, Illinois, that is, not Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, which you described as a no-stoplight town uh, in the heartlands of Illinois. You talk, talk of yourself as being the Ozzie and Harriet 
of this area and Ozzie and Harriet for our listening audience was a television show about the Nelson family, Ricky Nelson from <laughs> 52 to 66, one of the longest running uh, live action sitcoms in US history. So tell us about this no stoplight town and how how you got started and were you an athlete growing up? Well, Atlanta, Illinois, when I was a kid, was 1,300 people. It was on U.S. famous U.S. Route 66. Our house, the, the Kindred's house, sat across the street from railroad tracks and U.S. 66. Uh, as far as I knew, it was a great town. You know, it was only later that I discovered that it was you know the middle of nowhere. But it was it had everything that a that a young boy would want. I was you know, five minutes away from the baseball diamond, five minutes away from school, five minutes away from everything that I ever wanted. And uh, so it was, in retrospect, I say Ozzy and Harriet because, I, it, you know, some memoirs, you know, dwell on the, 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 the terror, the horror of growing up. You know, my, my growing up was idyllic. You know, I, all I did was play baseball, play basketball, and, and go to school. And I loved all of that. You say that your childhood was baseball, basketball, and books, that your dad did the baseball part, and your mom did the typewriter part. Fill that out. Well, you know, I, I used to listen to the radio. I'd listen to Harry Carey. Harry Carey was the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals broadcaster in my youth. KMOX, you know, KMOX covered America from east of the Mississippi down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the Cardinals were had their own nation. I listened to the Cardinals every night. I would write up little stories, you know, longhand on paper. I would write stories about the Cardinals games, University of Illinois basketball games. And it became, I was writing for the, the high school newspaper, too. My mother, sensing this ambition, I guess, one day came home with a typewriter. For $5, she had bought a, a royal typewriter, portable typewriter, at an auction. So I put it on the kitchen table. I was 15 years old. I sat there looking at the paper in the typewriter. because I, I decided I wanted to write words that I would remember always. I guess, Michael, I guess that's when I decided, well, okay, you know, if my plan to be a Major League Baseball player doesn't work out, maybe I can be a Major League Baseball writer. So I sat at the typewriter wanting to remember the first words I ever wrote. And maybe 10 minutes later, I typed out Stanley Frank Musial, who at that time, I'm talking about 1956, was one of the great players in baseball. Certainly now one of the great players in baseball history. He was my hero as a St. Louis Cardinal. I wanted to remember the first words I ever typed. So what else would I type? And uh, now, what's this? Literally 67 years later, I'm now working on a book about Stan Musial and the 1946 Cardinals. Took me a long time to get around to that. But uh, I'm having fun doing it. Well, I have to tell you, I grew up in New York. I'm a Yankees fan. And I still remember with great pain the 1964 World Series where your St. Louis Cardinals beat my New York Yankees in, in, game, in the seventh game of that World Series. Musial by then had retired. Musial retired in 63. He was in the World Series in 1946. Right. And that was the last one he was in until he was the general manager of the Cardinals in 64. Right. But you had this, this, this young fellow, um, Bob Gibson. Yes. Gibson won three games, as I remember that year. He, he did. He three did games indeed. in that World he Series. Exactly right. Exactly right. So... You write that you became a real newspaper person by winning an essay contest that offered a scholarship that would pay half of your tuition at Illinois Wesleyan University, and the other half you earned by working at the Pentagraph, which was a regional, distinguished regional newspaper. Do I have that right? 
Yes, absolutely. It was one of the great thrills of my life, of course. I can remember going downtown. Downtown Atlanta was like one block, one square block. And our house was about five blocks away. I can remember going to the post office. I was eager to find out what happened with my essay contest. So I'd go to the, to the post office every day. And one day the letter was there from the pantograph and I didn't open it. I took it home. I wanted to read it at home. And I found that I had in fact won that contest. Um, and at that time, Illinois Westland private university was beyond our family means. It was $3,000 a year, I think. Now it's something like $60,000 a year, but it was $3,000 a year. We couldn't afford it. And it, set my life forever. You know, I worked at the, basically I worked at the newspaper, played baseball, you know, uh, courted my future wife and occasionally went to class. Um, but it was, the, it was the, that moment winning that essay contest, uh, set the course for my life forever. I, I loved working at the Pantograph, small newspaper. You know, I, I loved, uh, the whole thing. I got to do everything. I was a one-man sports department three or four times a week. So you had determined at this point that being a great baseball player was not going to happen. And so you were now on the road to being the great sports writer that you are, uh, are today. Well, I, I quickly, first time I saw a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, I decided that I could probably type better than I could hit. You know, so I played baseball at Illinois Wesleyan for four years, and uh, that taught me. I played one year, my short, the shortstop, I was a second baseman. The shortstop was a guy named Doug Rader. Doug Rader was 6'3", probably 190. I was 5'7", 140. I took one look at him. One day he, he went behind the third baseman to catch a, a ball hopped over the third baseman's head. Raider went up for it, got it, come that came down and threw the man out at first base. And I'm standing at second base saying, I couldn't have done that. You know, so it, it was a lesson to me that I, I'd better find some other, uh, some other work to do. And the newspaper was the, the thing that appealed to me. I, I loved, I loved it all. I loved the reporting, loved the writing, loved the, the interviewing, all of it. Yeah, so Raider could have gone on to be the Cal Ripon, but you could have been the Phil Rizzuto. You could have you you could have been a contender. <laughs> well, uh, I don't think so. I would look. And one of the things, Michael, is that in those days, I'm talking about you know the '50s and '60s. I played baseball every chance I got, every day of my life. But I had no idea really if I was any good or not. Because who knows? You didn't see baseball on television 24 hours a day. You had no access to, well, how good is Phil Rizzuto anyway? You know, how does he make, how does he get all those base hits on bunts? How does he do that? You know, how good is Pee Wee Reese? I don't know. I'm about their size. Maybe I'm that good. You know, and, but really, you know, a 90 mile an hour fastball separates the prospects from the suspects. And the scene became apparent that, that I was not that going to be that uh, wonderkin kind of player. Well, perhaps the world is better off having you as a writer. It's the, um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the luck that we all got, um, even if it dashed a, a small dream of yours. It's that scene in Bull Durham where the doctor leaves the baseball field to save the little girl's life. Everybody is better off that he became a doctor perhaps than <laughs> a baseball player, even though his dream was dashed a little bit. Well, yeah, the no, no doubt all of that is true. And, but at the same time, all of my baseball experience for good or bad has been put to use. I mean, I, I still insist that, you know, a lot of people will criticize sports writers because, you know, he, you did, you couldn't do that. You're just jealous, all of that. Well, yeah, I couldn't do it, but I am not jealous. I understood how good you have to be to succeed at that. Yeah, all of my baseball work, 
you know, informed everything I thought about professional athletics, college athletics, for that matter. I was never a guy who was jealous of, of the great stars. You know, I understood the craft. I understood how they got there. I understood it probably better than some of them did because they all came with great athletic gifts. So it was always easy for a lot of professional athletes. You know, I knew how hard it had to be for, for, for a lot of So I want to move forward from the pentagraph where you were, you know, Jimmy Olsen, cub reporter, learning your, your dues and move to the uh, Courier Journal Times in Louisville. But before we do, I want to um, ask something that I think is a bit more important in the arc of this book. And that question is, who is Cheryl Leesman? How did you meet her? When did you meet her? And tell us about her and the anchor that she was for your life. Well, uh, uh, sorry, even just the mention of her name still uh, causes me to stop and, and, and not know what to say. But I can, re- I began the book with the first time I saw her. You know, it's like a movie scene. It really was. Uh, I was maybe 15, 16, going to the movie, the Palace Theater, in the grandly named Palace Theater in Atlanta, Illinois, owned by Louis Duterman, cost, you know, dime, 15 cents to go to a movie. Went to a movie, and I saw this girl across the street. You know, and I, you know, who knows, who knows why one face attracts you and holds you and, and others don't. But I saw her, and, and the light chose her. You know, I could see her. I didn't know who she was. I found out that night who she was. You know, she was Cheryl Leesman from Lincoln, Illinois, and she had come to Atlanta because she lives in the country and all that. So I did my kind of scouting report. But I had never, then I didn't see her again for another year and a half until one day in school, in the hallway, I see her. So then, you know, I, I can't stay away from her. You know, she has a locker next to my locker. I said, you're Cheryl Leesman. And she said, hi, Dave. And I'm thinking, what? Has she know who I am? Uh, so we became friends. We became girlfriend, boyfriend. You know, we were cast as one of the teachers was uh, sharp enough to understand that Dave and Cheryl had something going. She cast us as the romantic leads in the senior class play. Uh, and... You know, it was art as prophecy. You know, we, we were married maybe three or four years later. You know, I, she was a registered nurse. We moved from Illinois to Kentucky. And for the next 59 and a half years, we were married. We had, to, had, to, had a boy, had a son. And yes, you know, the sports writer, Dave Anderson, great columnist at the New York Times, who you, you probably read a thousand times, uh, once told me that the secret, the secret, Dave, if you want to keep doing this, is to marry the perfect woman. <laughs> Dave told me his story. I told him mine, and he said, you're on the right track. You know, Cheryl was, Cheryl was not a sports fan. She was not a sports fan. She went with me to the Super Bowl every year because the Super Bowl for a wife was just a week of parties. Uh, but she read everything. She was the first reader, and she was always there. She understood that I had to do what I was doing. Uh, it's not the best kind of family life because even at our 50th wedding anniversary, I made the joke, you know, one of those jokes that's too true to be funny. But, you know, we've really... We've been married 50 years, but we've only been together like 10 years because the rest of the time I've been out chasing stories. I know that feeling. But I just wanted to make clear to the listening audience who think that perhaps this is a a sports book, and it is in part, and we'll talk about that. But the dedication says it all. You say that this book is dedicated to Cheryl forever and a day. And it, it... is the most touching part of the book having you talk about your relationship with her and 
we'll talk about the end of her life um, toward the latter part of the interview. But I, I think this Forever in a Day is just a wonderful dedication, Dave. Well, thank you, Michael, because, I mean, that was uh, the last time I was with her, literally the last time that she was alive. Uh, she had lapsed into unconsciousness. Um, I was with her the last day. I went to her room at the nursing home, talking to her. I said, I knew that it was near the end. I said, I loved you then. I loved you now. I love you always. Her eyes came open. Beautiful blue eyes. And I knew what that meant. You know, and that was the end. So I got to say to her the last words. Those words now are on her on our marker in Atlanta, Illinois Cemetery. You know, I'll be there probably sooner than I want to be. But uh, that was the, the last moment of her life. And it, for us, or for me, you know, just as, as a guy who remembered seeing her in the light outside the Palace Theater and seeing the light in her eyes at the end was, was lovely. It's nice when the circle is closed, huh? Well, you know, I guess writers can't help it, but I actually was thinking that. I'm thinking, you know, if, if she's going to die right here, right now, what do I want to say to her? You know, and I said it. Yeah. And she heard you, and, and that's a blessing. Yes, I think so. I hope so. Back, back to sports. I wanted to return for a moment because we'll talk about Cheryl one more time before we close to, to 1965 and you have left the pentagraph and you've gone now to the Courier Journal Times. It's 1965 and the sports editor there is a guy named Earl Cox. It's October 1966. You're there about a year, a little bit less, and it's a big, bigger newspaper, city newspaper, Louisville. And he says to you, Kindred, Clay's in town, go find him. Clay, of course, at that time was Cassius Clay, which is what his, his name, he had changed his name to Muhammad Ali two years before. But the Louisville newspaper continued to refer to him as Cassius Clay, comma, also known as Muhammad Ali. I was a kid. I was working the desk. I was doing, I was, Earl had given me license to just find a story any day and, and write it. So I was on the phone. I'd come in early. I'd bring my three-year-old son with me, put him in a typewriter, and then I would try to find a story to write. And then that one day, you know, Clay's in town. Go find him. Well, I knew who Clay was, but I didn't know how to find him. I'd never been out of the office. You know, I'd never done anything except come into the office and edit copy and write headlines on other people's stories. Clay's in town. Go find him. So I knew that his father, Cassius Clay Sr., had an art gallery of sorts a couple blocks away from the newspaper. I went there. Clay, Clay Sr. said, He's, he's, he's in the West end, go find him. You know, so I went to the West end of Louisville, African-American end, the black end of, of where most of the blacks in Louisville lived, you know, and it was no trouble finding Cassius because every time I'd find, I'd stop somewhere I was driving, I'd stop somewhere and ask somebody, anybody seen Cassius? Well, everybody had seen Cassius because he was in town on a promotion and he was just going to his old neighborhood haunts. So I find him. I take, put him in the car. He carries my son on his lap. We, we just drive around all day. And I wound up writing a story about Cassius Clay coming back to town. It was my first time with Clay, Ali. 
And I wrote about him for the next 50 years in hundreds of situations. I went to 17 of his fights, 10 championship fights. Uh, and until I wrote about, until I began writing about the Morton High School girls basketball team, <laughs> I'd written more about Muhammad Ali than anything in my life. And certainly if, if, if in the end anybody looks up Dave Kindred, you know, this, if in the future people Google Dave Kindred, they're probably going to find him writing something about Muhammad Ali. Well, you say that you found him and that um, he was 24 and you were 25 and that you would grow old together, the fighter and the writer. And in time, I would know what to do when I found him. What do you mean? Well, in time, I came to understand who he was. You know, he, in those early years, he was probably the most reviled man in America. He had refused the draft, you know, even in Louisville. Uh, people, people, didn't, people didn't know what to make of Ali. They wanted to like him, but how could you like him when he's refusing to serve in the Army? You know, I, I just saw the evolution of Ali from the, a disciple of... Uh, of a nation of Islam, a disciple of Elijah Muhammad. I saw the evolution of, of that to the Ali that became revered, went from reviled to revered in my time. So I understood how that was happening. I always thought, in my mind, he was, it was always a constant. He was always a sweetheart. The Ali that, that we saw lighting the torch in Atlanta, the flame, his shaking Parkinson's, you know, he can't quite get it done. That Ali we all loved. And I saw the evolution of, of that Ali from, from refusing the draft to being the most famous man in the world. You know, at a time, you know, either the Pope or Muhammad Ali was the most famous man in the world. And but to me, he was always the same kind of sweetheart that, that, uh, that I liked, that I loved, and... And that's those, the guy that I wrote about. Certainly it was complicated, and I was certainly never just completely enthralled by him. I criticized him as, as well as, as often as anybody else did, uh, because he, he did it a lot of, in his racist years, you know, his very racist years, you know, he was intolerable. But I think that he was... He was under the command, not under the command as much as just under the sway of Elijah Muhammad. You know, he was always, I think Ali always was looking for a mentor. He was always looking for someone to lead him. And it was easily led in those first years. And Elijah Muhammad had, had, uh, had captured him. You, you, you tell a story, which I think maybe is a fitting story to explain what you've just talked about. And that's the story of you with Ali at a funeral parlor. Can you talk about that a minute? That was in uh, uh, Philadelphia. Um, he was living in Cherry Hills, New Jersey at the time. I was visiting him in his house. House I still remember. It was, you know, most houses have wallpaper. His house in Cherry Hills had mirrors on all the walls. So he was always watching himself. Uh, but one night, he, he, he just wanted, he'd heard about a policeman, I believe, who had been shot and killed at one of his fights. For, I forget the fight. But he said, let's go. So he got his father, who was living with him at the time, and we got in his Rolls Royce and drove to a row house funeral home in Philadelphia. And uh, I still remember Ali standing at the, at the coffin, touching the dead man, pressing against the man's hand, pressing against his cheek, you know, and, and remarking that I'm not worth this. I'm not worth getting killed for. But that's why, you know, again, that was a, one of those moments, I, as far as I know, I mean, I know I was the only guy there that night. I was the only guy that Ali would have said, let's go to, let's go to a funeral home and see this guy who died for me. 
because he, I think the man had been in an argument, you know, at the arena and wound up getting shot. So that's the kind of moment that I thought showed the real Ali. You know, he was a guy who, who cared about people and he cared about a lot of people. Uh, and that was at a time of, of the evolution that I talked about too. This was in the, the early seventies, you know, Elijah Muhammad had died. Ali was more free to be the guy that he wanted to be. It's a great story. And I think if I remember correctly, the guy did die in a, in a dispute over who was a better fighter. Was it Frazier or, or Ali or the, the fellow that um, Ali had just fought? Yeah. And that's where he says, I'm not worth this. I'm not, I'm not worth losing a life over. Chilling. And, and, and that was the side of, side of Ali that, that few people ever saw. Can we turn to um, the writing process itself? Because so much about this book also is about writing and what writers do. You write that writers write and that the key attribute of a good writer is to be a good listener to take in the facts and the story will find you. Be a reporter first and a writer second. So can you talk about that? I could probably talk about that for a few years. You know, it's, it's something that I've learned slowly over the years. You know, a lot of people think writers just write off the top of their head. Uh, and those are the, the writers that are not remembered. But I think, you know, even even my buddy Kornheiser, you know, who's is had a way with words that few people ever did, you know, he was first a great reporter, first a great reporter, great observer. You know, uh, Tony understood the small details in life, and that's what makes good stories. And that's what I always, that's why, I think why I was attracted to the business in the first place. You know, because you didn't have to be a performer. What you had to do was uh, create a, a bond of trust between you and the people you were writing about, you know, and pay attention. Just pay attention to them. And so listening was always much easier, much easier to listen to people than to tell them what you think. And if I've done anything over the years well, I think it's listen and watch and see and, and pick up the small details. Because that's what makes stories seem real, makes them real, makes them real, and puts the reader there. Take the reader with you to to the moment, you know, and and make them feel it the way that you felt it. And so it's always, I mean, it's always fun when you can do that. You know, you can't always do it with every story, but when you do it and you get it right, it's a great feeling. Well, you've gotten it right quite a lot. And um, it's reminded me what you've just said. I, I, I interviewed Carl Bernstein on this podcast. He, his memoir was called Chasing History. And I made a note to myself at the time, he wrote something about journalism, which was, uh, he said, there was a safety in journalism, a haven in reporting, proceeding without judgment or predisposition to whatever the facts and context and rigorous question led you to, to some notion of truth in all its complexity. It gave me comfort and purpose. Same for you? Can't say, can't be said better than that. You know, that's the, you know, he's thought about it uh, uh, more deeply than I ever thought about it, I think. You know, he, he dealt with journalism at a higher level than I did, certainly in in political world. You know, I was in the sports world, but I, but I always, I just wrote about people. I wanted people to under, I wanted readers to understand the person that I was talking to. You know, if I was, uh, if I were interviewing um, Ozzie Smith, great Cardinal shortstop, I wanted people to understand how Smith did what he did, what he thought. You know, how he mastered the craft. Craft was always what I was seeking. You know, 
And uh, so it was when you when you've done it right, and when you put the reader there, you made the reader feel what you're feeling, made the reader feel what the subject is feeling, and you've created something from nothing. You've created something that that didn't happen before. To me, that was the the purpose. That was the goal every time I wrote something. Sally Jenkins, the the Washington Post uh, sports reporter, who also I interviewed on this podcast, and she has that wonderful book, The Right Call, What Sport Teaches Us About Work and Life. She said of herself, and I wanted to know whether you felt similarly, she said that her proximity to champions and champion organizations, but mostly to champions, unquestionably influenced how she went about doing her own job, that it was greatly influencing of her life to interact with these people who were performing at this level of excellence. Did you feel similarly? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, you're putting yourself in the company of people who are the very best at what they do. And you want to be the very best at what you do. And you understood that's, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're learning secrets about your own work by learning Ozzie Smith's secrets about playing shortstop. You know, it, it's, uh, it's not osmosis, but it, it's being in proximity with people who pursue uh, the unreachable. Now, I talked to Tom Watson, a great golfer once. I wanted him to tell me his thoughts during a round. You know, what are you thinking when you're, when you're in the middle of a great round? He says, you wouldn't understand it. I said, well, try me. He didn't want to do it. You know, I think he, he didn't understand really how to explain it. And I think that's the same with, with, with writers. I mean, the, the great thrill, the great fun, when you, the great achievement when you're writing is when you've written a sentence that you didn't know you were going to write. Where'd that come from? You know, Ozzie Smith makes a great play behind second base, diving play, you know, flips the ball out of his glove to the second baseman. How did he do that? He didn't know. He just did it. And when you can do that in writing, when you can write a sentence that you didn't know you were going to write, and even when you've written it, you stop and look at it and say, where'd that come from? Well, you're happy that it came from somewhere, you know? And so I think seeing great athletes, seeing great performers in anything do great work, you know, inspires us all. I mean, I was watched the, you know, Taylor Swift. I saw a, a thing with Taylor Swift the other day from Saturday night live of, I think 10, 12 years ago when she's a kid, she said it's always been her ambition since she was a child. She was 19 at the time to be on Saturday night live. She does this thing that she calls the Saturday night monologue. That was fabulous. It was funny as hell, and she was charming. Uh, but it shows you uh, where she came from. You know, now she's a billionaire megastar. But once upon a time, she was creating. And so when you're in the company of those people, when you see Muhammad Ali's work in a, in a gym when nobody is watching, when you see what he went through to, to become who he was, you know, it's, it's, it, it's inspiring. It, it moves you to try to be the best that you can be. I think that's what Sally is saying. You know, she's with Martina Navratilova. She sees Navratilova's work ethic. She sees the ambition, the drive, and that has to bleed into you. And, and it certainly has with me, with all of these people for a long time. It's interesting that you said when you read a sentence that you wrote and you ask yourself, where did that come from? Um, as if from divine intervention. I remember an interview um, with um, uh, Bradley and Bob Dylan on, on 60 Minutes. And he asked Bob Dylan, he reads him one of his lines from one of his songs. He says, where did that come from? How did you do that? He said, I don't know. I couldn't do it now. I don't know. It just, it just arrived. That's, that's exactly the way that I feel. You know, I, I think 
it, it's the product of everything. It's the product of every life experience you've had. It's the product of studying the craft. It's the product of, of studying masters of the craft. Sooner or later, you know, it's, it's going to happen in, in a way that you had no anticipation of it. Uh, but you're very happy that it did. You're very happy. You know, if it happens once, once, once in a month, once in a week, you know, once ever, you know, you, but you can't make it happen. It just does. Billie Jean King, in her book, All In, said what sport teaches is that identity, who you are, is a self-construct and that people who bet on themselves tend to win. And I'm wondering if you felt that that was a lesson that you learned about your craft that well, that it was a self-construct and that if you bet on yourself and you believed in yourself, uh, you had a chance of succeeding. I've never heard that said that way before, but yeah, I think it's, it's an inner conceit. I, I don't know what, I think maybe Branch Rickey used that term once on Jackie Robinson, an inner conceit where you, you don't have to puff your chests up and go around bragging about yourself. Oh, Ali, it certainly worked for Ali, you know, but if you believe in yourself, you believe that what you're, how you're doing it is the right way to do it. Um, it will take you a long way. You know, you, you have to, you have to learn lessons along the way too, you know, but at the same time, you have to think I can apply those lessons. I can do that, you know, and, but at the same time, you know, I, I never felt that it was uh, a gift. You know, I, I just felt that it was something that, that I had earned, that I had worked for, that I had read a lot. I understood. I would, knew what I wanted. I wanted to be Red Smith. When I grew up, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be Red Smith. I wanted to be a sports writer like that. I wanted somebody that you could read and you could feel the emotion of it. You could feel the sense of it. You could you could be at Ebbets Field. You could see Jackie Robinson diving across second base, winning a World Series. You know, you, but you had, it's what I wanted. And that was everything I did. Everything I did was, was directed at being, you know, the best observer and the best writer, the best taking you there writer that I could be. And, you know, there's a cost to that, you know, 40 years on the road, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's, it, I had an ambition and I thought I knew how to get there. Well, you did get there. I, I, I remember reading a quote from Dan Jenkins, uh, the great uh, sports writer, and you are the, the winner of the Dan Jenkins Medal of Excellence in Sports Writing, but Dan Jenkins says to Sally, his daughter, the sports writer we talked about, is who can describe the athletic heart? How do you describe that? And I think the the sort of note on on your writing is I think better than most all, you you did describe the athletic heart. You did tell us who this person was, and you saw the world through their eyes at the moment that you were writing. I think that's an incredible achievement. Well, I think that's what I was saying a little earlier, Michael, in, in the sense of, you know, yeah, I was a, I was an athlete. I was a basketball player. I was a baseball player at a, you know, at a minimum level of, of achievement, but I understood the ambition of it. I understood the, the drive that it took to succeed. Um, and that's what I always admired in, in, in the, in the, not only in the great athletes, but in the, the mediocre athletes, you know, they still had the same drive. They just didn't have the same athletic gifts, the same muscular skills, uh, of everyone else. Uh, but you know, I've always said that, you know, the, the greatest thing in, in what I did in sports writing was to see ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And extraordinary people doing unimaginable things. You can separate the athletes in those categories, 
you know, the ordinary is doing extraordinary. They're, they're everywhere. Then you get to see the extraordinary ones doing things that no one had ever imagined. You get to see Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Ali. You know, when, when you see those people, you know you're in the presence of something, of something beyond, something almost beyond human. And, it, and it's inspiring. You know, so, okay, I can, I've, I'm going to try to be, I'm going to try to be as good at this column as Michael Jordan is, you know, playing against the Wizards or somebody. Act two of the book starts in about 2010. You say you're uh, 70 years old, more or less. The, the print journalism's death rattle is growing louder. Newspapers and magazines are dying in the digital age, and no one is looking to coax an old geezer like you, hardly an old geezer, but an old geezer like you, out of retirement, uh, which, when I read it, was sort of depressing stuff. Um, and you say that you and Cheryl, ignoring Thomas Wolfe's admonition about going home, um, go home again, back to back to Illinois. And so what, what was your plan? Were you going to just sit there and watch paint dry or wood crackle in the fireplace? What were you, what were you thinking? Well, I was at, the, at that time, I was thinking that my wife needed to be around people. You know, she was in, she'd had a, a small stroke, if, if any stroke can be called small. And it was clear that she needed to be around people. We lived in the country when we were in Virginia, and she was mostly alone. So it was, I thought it would be good for her to be with her family. I had, I didn't need to work other than I needed to work. You know, and when we came back, I really had no plans to do anything except take care of Cheryl, be with Cheryl until I went to that basketball game, went to a girls' basketball game and decided that I could not like about it. For four or five years, it was just a, a lark. And then Cheryl had the catastrophic stroke. And then the work became more purposeful than, than just a lark. You know, it became, it was who I was. You know, it was, I didn't want to disappear you know, it was it was important to find something to do to sustain myself, and then I developed a community there. You know, among the 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 grandma, I sat in grandma row at basketball games with all the grandmas. You know, I knew the players personally. I knew their parents. It became a, a family for me that I really had never had, never expected to have. And it, it then gave me, uh, you know, the, the title of the book includes the subtitle Redemptive Power of Small Town Girls Basketball. Well, it, it redeemed me from whatever was, whatever blackness was going, was awaiting me. You know, it gave me a purpose in life and it, it's who I was. You know, I, I wrote about the girls as seriously as I ever wrote about anything. I had fun with it. Because, you know, they're high school girls, you know, and, 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 but I'm a writer and it gave me a way to write, you know, in the, in the meantime, while writing about maybe 400 girls games, you know, I wrote two books, got a third one in the, in the process. And if I hadn't made that connection, I'm not sure what I'd be doing. I'm not sure what I would be doing. I have no idea from the time I first typed Stanley Frank Musial, that's all I ever did was right. And that's all I ever will do. It's a funny story that you tell at the beginning of the book. You mentioned it a little bit in the introduction, but I wanted to just flesh it out because it made me laugh out loud. You, you and Cheryl go to the girls' basketball game, the Lady Potters um, basketball team from Morton, Illinois, uh, population 17,000, uh, more or less. And, and you write in the book, you said, it was the first time I was at a sporting event since age 17 uh, where I had actually buy a ticket. So you buy your ticket. You're sitting in the, um, in the bleachers. <laughs> you're watching the game just to watch the game. And you lean over to Cheryl and you say, 
can you give me a pen? And she finds a pen and she um, hands it to you and you write on the ketchup smeared McDonald's bag, quote, last saw a girl's game in 1975. It's not 1975 anymore. So the muscle memory just, <laughs> just, just took over. Exactly right. You know, and and I, in fact, I've seen pictures of that. We took pictures of that uh, McDonald's bag. Yeah, I couldn't, uh, I just couldn't. I mean, I first time I went to a show on Broadway, Man of La Mancha, you know, how, now how long ago was that? I wanted to go backstage and interview Richard Kiley, you know, because that's what we do. We watch games and then we talk to the participants, you know, I, so it's just, it's ingrained in me. It, it, it made me more forceful than I was personality wise. I was shy and bashful, you know, but you can't be shy and bashful for long. If you have to go into a locker room and, and ask people, you know, uncomfortable questions or even good questions sometimes. Uh, so yeah, got a pin. She had a pin. And the great thing about those years covering the the girls basketball is that Cheryl went with me. She never went with me for 50 years, except for the Super Bowl. As I said, she'd go to the, for the parties, but she never went to sports events, but for the Morton lady Potters, she went with me to every game. She rode with me in the car when we'd driving, uh, across barren farmlands in the dark and the snow, uh, to all these games. Uh, so it was a, it was a great time for that. You know, I would dictate to her in the car, in the dark, coming home, you know, take a note. And she would do that. So it was, it was always fun. And uh, it did start with, you know, notes on a McDonald's bag, notes among the ketchup stains. Well, and the thing that made me continue to laugh in this opening part of, of the book is, you, you, after the game, you, you approach this fellow, Dave Byrne, um, who runs the website, and you say, do you mind if I write about the team? And he looks at you, and you say, I'm a bit disheveled. I'm wearing you know, overalls or something, hadn't shaved. And he is looking at you skeptically, and he says, oh, maybe, uh, looking for an out. Let me, let me just run it by Coach Becker first, and we'll see. And so he runs it past Becker. Becker, the coach of this team, um, who ended up taking Lady Potters to four state championships during your tenure, which I think is causal. I think that's the only reason that of their success is that you were there in the, in the stands cheering <laughs> them on. But but you, you meet with Becker um, and you say, I, he's looking at me and I'm thinking that he's thinking, does this guy know how to spell? Does he know how to even type? Um, and you say, I, I'd like to, to cover the team, not giving him your, your, your resume. And he says, yeah, fine. All right. And you say, what well, now you admit, you say, well, well, you have to understand I've been a professional sports writer for all my life and I, I need, I expect to be paid, um, for this work. And, and, uh, after a tense negotiation, you, you came up with a, with a payment plan. What was that? Well, I, I told Dave Byrne I was doing this negotiating with. I told him that I'm a professional sports writer, and he looked at me and kind of judged my experience and my talent and my good looks and said, how about a box of milk duds every game? Well, so now, 10 years later, I've eaten probably 40,000 calories worth of milk duds. In fact, on my kitchen table right now, I've got uh, 10 boxes of milk duds that I haven't uh, consumed yet this season. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair salary, don't you think, all in all? It's a, I think it's, it's perfect. And, th and the great thing now, Michael, the great thing now is that before every game, one of the girls on the team, her assignment before they go out to warm up is to take a box of milk duds to Mr. Kendrick. So every game, one of the girls brings me a box of milk duds. Michael Jordan never did that for me. I, I expect that uh, this is really the, the the highlight of your of your uh, salaried career. 
It is. You know, it's, uh, you know, I don't even have to report it to the IRS. So you cover the Lady Potters uh, from Morton, Illinois, I say, uh, 17,000. It's the in the pumpkin capital of, of, of the world. And you, and you write of them that these um, athletes were the Golden State Warriors, perennial, um, at least recently, NBA basketball championships. You, you say that they were the Golden State Warriors with ponytails. And I said the first four or five years, uh, I had never seen, I saw one girls basketball game in 1975 in Kentucky, and I'd never seen one since until 2010. The first four or five years, I, didn't, I knew nothing. I didn't know if they were any good or not. They had decent records. Uh, but then they started winning state championships. 19, in 2015 was their first. They won in 15, 16, 17, and 19. And in a six-year period, their record was 210 and 14, which is like a 94% winning percentage. They, they dominated the state in their class. Illinois has four classes from one up to four. Morton is in class 3A. Uh, but they were, they were dominant for those six, seven years. And they're still good. They're the 21-5 and five right now this season. Uh, they have a shot at, at getting to the state finals again, final four. Uh, we'll see about that. But it was... Uh, it's it's just been uh, great in on so many levels. Not only a chance to for, to see young kids, you know. It's, I got tired of the professionalism professionalism of college athletics. Got tired certainly of the NBA. I got tired of all. I'd done I'd done everything. I'd been everywhere, you know. And this was new. It was fun to see the young people having fun. It was fun to be part of that. It was fun when they got to be very good, you know, and it's been fun to write about it. It's been fun to, to be paid so highly for it, you know, and uh, I'm 82 years old now. I'm not sure how long I will do this. I'm not sure I want to be writing about the granddaughters of people that I wrote about when I first came here. Uh, but I have no plans to stop doing it. I'm going to keep doing it until I can't do it. And and everybody is grateful uh, for that. I want to I want to mention something. Uh, I keep talking about other authors that I've interviewed, but I do that um, because what they say so well connects to what you're talking about. Because this is not, as I said, this is not really a sports book. It is, you cover, talk about the Masters and the World Series and the uh, Super Bowls and stuff, but it's really about people and, and, and life. And in my interview of Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the um, CNN chief medical correspondent, he has a book called Keep Sharp, and it's about how to maintain brain health. And one of the things, he has five pillars of maintaining brain health, and one of those pillars is creating and maintaining connections, that it is important to be connected to other human beings uh, for, as a matter of your brain health. And it seems to me that what you've been saying directly relates to this. You became part of a family. You created connections for yourself that now with the passing of your wife in 2016 is, is your family. This connection um, is what maintains you. Uh, so Gupta has it right, I think. Do you, do you agree? Absolutely. I, I think that's right. I've never put it that way, but uh, it's probably a human instinct, a human instinct to want to be with people. You know, I can't imagine really going, you know, my wife, uh, stroke happened in 2016. That's eight years now. I can't imagine the eight years of, of, of silence, of dark, 
of of uh, melancholy. I can't imagine living with that as a 24-hour day thing. You know, so I think it's 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 human instinct to reach out for some light, and certainly for me, the way that the, you know, it's not only a reaching out for light with basketball in the little gyms that I grew up in with the light of in the face of young girls, you know, the light in the face of a coach who's creating the team that is memorable, you know, and I get to share that light. And, and it's, it's what I grew up wanting to be. So what can be better than to find a way through the darkness by seeing the light that you first saw when you were 16 and you wanted it to continue. So what the girls have done for me is just, you know, show me that light, you know, every, you know, there's girls now that, that I first saw they're married and mothers, you know, I, I talk to them, I see their children, you know, it's, it's a continuing, it's a continuing light that that draws me in and, and nourishes me and without it without it i'd probably be dead i mean that's melodramatic but it's but it's probably true well you you wrote um that grief had become your silent companion and then the this connection with the, the these lady potters and their families um as you say, pulled you out of that darkness and has has sustained you, uh, and it's a lesson um, for for everybody, is it not, Dave? Absolutely, it is. You know, can't go can't go quiet into that gentle night, as O'Neill said. You know, you 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 have to fight it, and my way of fighting came naturally. You know, it, 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 it reminded me who I was, you know, I didn't want to be that, that old man, you know, you know, withering away somewhere. I wanted to be, I wanted to be who I, who I thought I was, you know, I didn't want to give that up and the girls certainly, and I think anybody can profit by that. Anybody, the whole creative, the creative process is what sustains me too. You know, not only the community of people but just yeah you know it's, it sounds easy you know go to a girls basketball game come home you know write 400 500 words that you hope will entertain somebody that you hope will that you hope these girls will will read you know maybe somebody will learn something about basketball maybe they'll learn something about having fun in a little gym with girls basketball maybe it will like you know, be, make somebody smile once in the morning, you know, you've done something, you've created something, you had a, a little purpose in life, you know, and, and everything you've ever done for 50 years, you know, you now can distill into this 500 words about a girls basketball team and, uh, and be the better for it. You better go to bed happy that you've done something that day. It's nice to have a renewed purpose in life. Well, it's, it's been good for me, certainly been good for me. And I think it could be good for anybody. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of things. I was, I was never a guy with any hobby, you know, writing was what I did and writing, reading, reading and writing, you know, it's all I ever did. It's all I ever wanted to do. You know, since my wife is gone, I have learned to do the wash, you know, two loads at a time, that kind of thing. But before I knew how to do anything, you know, she did it all. You know, and, and she taught me how to do it. My last question was going to be for Act 3, what's next? But you've sort of answered it in a way, which is what's next is what, what's on, ongoing. And uh, Sanjay Gupta, again, in his Keep Sharp book, says people live longer who don't retire, meaning that it's important to stay engaged in, in life. You don't have to necessarily be paid money or even milk duds, although I would stick with the milk duds for sure. Um, but staying engaged <laughs> um, 
is is what he says uh, you need to be. So is engagement for you Lady Potters uh, now and forever in a day? I, th- I think it will be. You know, I have no plans to quit. I, I will always write. You know, it, it's what nourishes me. It keeps me thinking. You know, it keeps me engaged. You know, the, the basketball season gives me a schedule. I remember, um, well, it gives me a schedule. It gives me, you know, 40 games in a, in a winter to go to. Um, but in the meantime, I'll write other stuff. You know, if, if I don't write basketball forever, I would be writing other stuff. I mean, I've been saying for 50 years I want to write a novel. You know, I've, I've started several novels. You know, I've never finished any of them. You know, but maybe I will now. You know, it gives me something to look forward to. It's great. Well, and you have the Stan Musial World Series books, which we all look forward to. You're completing. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that for sure. I've done I've done all the I've done all the research for the for Musial, and I will do that one in the next year. And then I'll find by then I will know something else that I would want to write about. Uh, you know, Godspeed, um, Dave Kindred. Uh, thank you for all the wonderful writing you've done, and thank you for this this memoir. Um, it's entitled My Home Team, A Sports Writer's Life and the Redemptive Power of a Small Town Girls Basketball Team. It's great stuff. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. appreciate your reading so carefully. You know, we writers treasure those careful readers, and you're certainly one of them. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please address any comments or questions to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.